Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The 1860s were one of the bloodiest decades in the history of the United States as the country was torn apart by civil war. While battlefields like Gettysburg became famous, a remote corner of Sumter County in southern Georgia gained notoriety as the deadliest place in the US in the later stages of the war. In 1864, the remote and sleepy community of Andersonville was transformed when a notorious Confederate prison camp was opened there. While tens of thousands of Union prisoners would pass through the gates of Andersonville, the death toll was staggering. Around one in three men incarcerated there died in the prison. These included hundreds and hundreds of Irish soldiers who served in the Union armies. This podcast tells their stories. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the story of the Andersonville Irish. My guest today is Damien Shields. Damien has been a guest on the show before when we discussed the broader Irish experience in the US Civil War. Since then, he has focused his research on the Irish incarcerated in the Andersonville prison camp. In this podcast, Damien will explain what exactly Andersonville was, what conditions in the camp were like and how the Irish imprisoned there fared. He also shares individual stories he has uncovered where people escaping the great hunger would find their hopes dashed in Andersonville. Now, before we begin what is a fascinating story, I have a few major announcements about what's coming up in the show. At the end of this month, I'll be releasing my series on the history of podcasting. Now, podcasting is older than you might expect, but the story of how it came to be is a fascinating journey through the history of our times. The series features some of your favourite hosts and has interviews from Blind Boy, Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford, who made West Cork, and Brian Green, a man who was making content at the dawn of podcasting nearly 20 years ago. The next big series after that then will turn to a topic never previously covered on the show before, and that's The Troubles. I've been preparing this since my book A Lethal Legacy came out, and the focus on The Troubles will come in the form of two series. So on the main show, we'll focus on one event, the Falls Curfew of 1970, which encapsulates a lot of what was happening in the North in the early Troubles. 
Now, to accompany this, there'll also be a six-part supporter series which explores the outbreak of the wider conflict in the North. This will be based around interviews with Dr. Brian Hanley. Brian is the author of the widely acclaimed The Lost Revolution and more recently The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968-79, Boiling Volcano. Now, myself and Brian are currently recording hours of interviews that will be distilled down into this six-part series, exploring the background to the Troubles, the civil rights movement, the emergence of the IRA, as well as pivotal events like the Battle of the Bogside and Bloody Sunday. The first will probably be released for supporters on Patreon and Acast Plus in December. Now, making this content is extremely time-consuming and expensive, and the support of listeners has been integral to all of this. I generally avoid constantly asking listeners to become supporters, but now is a great time to do it. If you become a supporter, you'll get access to that series with Dr. Brian Handy when it comes out, but you'll also have access to the back catalogue on Patreon and Acast Plus. That includes a series on the Civil War, an audiobook on the Black Death, and hours of bonus shows. Becoming a supporter is really easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or Acast Plus. I have links to both of them in the show notes below. Finally, all I want to say is thanks a million for taking the time to listen to this. Sound on the show was by Kate Dunley. Now, to begin our conversation, I asked Damien to give an overview of the US Civil War. While we focused most of our discussion on Andersonville, the broader context is important. The American Civil War was between 1861 and 1865, and it had been generally accepted by all historians in particular, and most people at this stage, that the primary cause of the war was slavery. It had been an issue since the foundation of the Republic in the 18th century, the fact that many of the northern states were, were free and many of the southern states used slavery and enslavement as a major part of its economy. And it had been a crisis that had been building and, and been put off through various mechanisms, political me- mechanisms, through most of the 19th century, until finally in 1860, an election with the New Republican Party, relative to the New Republican Party, who, who were committed to preventing the expansion of slavery into the Western territory. So America, of course, is expanding West, this manifest destiny, uh, mainly at the expense of Native American peoples. And so there is a consistent argument and a balance to try and see our new states and new territories that are coming into the Union going to be slave states or free states. And the way the American political system works is very similar to today, where it kind of finally balanced. You have things like senates, uh, senators, two senators from each state, and the whole construction of their government had been devised to try and keep this balance through the 19th century between free states and slave states in terms of how government was run. Abraham Lincoln's election was a bridge too far for some some of the more extreme people with slaveholding views in the South, and it led to this kind of spiraling domino effect of secession with 11 states seceding from the United States and forming the Confederate States of America. While there have been decades of building tensions in the US, culminating in the election of Abraham Lincoln, Damien explains the events that ignited the war. The war itself is sparked in April 1861 when Lincoln is trying to resupply US garrison troops in a place called Fort Sumter in Charleston. In South Carolina, South Carolina had been the first state to secede, and they are fired on by Confederate forces at that point. And Lincoln calls for 50,000 volunteers to assist, and then a number of other southern states 
leave the union as a result. So that's what forms effectively in, in, in very quick terms the Confederacy fighting in rebellion against the United States. Given we're going to focus on the Irish imprisoned in Andersonville, before we move on to the story of the camp, I asked Damien to explain Irish involvement in the wider US Civil War. The overall numbers here are breathtaking. Around 180,000 Irish-born people served in the Union Army, along with another 70,000 people who were the children of Irish emigrants. Well, it's an overused term in history, well overused term in history, but I do tend to call it the forgotten war in relation to Ireland as an island and our memory of things. And of course, it's primarily because the war comes so soon after the Great Famine, which sees this mass emigration. Mass emigration, it must be said, that had been underway prior to the, the coming of the famine, but is really accelerated by it through the 1850s. And so that means that by the time the war breaks out in 1861, there's about 1.6 million Irish-born people living in the United States. And then there are tens of thousands more Irish who are the children of immigrants, so say born in the 1840s in the United States, and the children of Irish immigrants who had, who had step-migrated through places like Britain and Canada. And so you've got this mass Irish population, New York, one in four people in New York City at the start of the um, American Civil War are born in Ireland. So this colossal move of Irish people, particularly into urban centres. And the majority of those urban centres are in northern states, the more urban development has occurred there, larger cities. And so most of the Irish are concentrated in the states that would remain loyal to, to, to the US. So you have these gigantic numbers of people. And in terms of figures, the latest figures we have now said in and around 180,000 Irish born men fought for the United States in the war, with an additional conservative estimate of about 70,000 children of Irish immigrants. So many people will be aware of the fact that Irish immigrants in this period, a lot of them being Catholic, but not all, plenty Church of Ireland, plenty Presbyterian Irish immigrants as well. But the, the majority Catholic Irish immigrants, because of their poverty, because of their religion, are discriminated against quite badly. And so it means that the Irish are very ethnically cohesive as a group. So, you know, if you were born in, in Buffalo, New York, two Irish parents, it's likely that you would stay connected to the Irish community, that you would board and live with Irish people, ethnically Irish people, that you would generally marry someone from the Irish community, that it would stay stay quite tight. So that gives us this kind of enormous figure of a quarter of a million Irish Americans fighting for the United States. And it's the only conflict that compares to it in modern Irish history is the First World War. Large numbers of Irish people served in the Confederate armies as well. Now, while the numbers might seem comparatively small, Damien explains how these numbers are big given the overall Irish population in the Confederate States. There are Significant numbers in the Confederacy as well, but but much lower. So it's around 20,000 Irish-born men fight for the Confederacy. So it's about a nine to one ratio in Irish-born. Despite the low sounding number, it's actually quite a high number in, in terms of the number of Irish who are living in the Confederate States. And so again, you're seeing the dominance there of places that had the large urban centres. So New Orleans is the largest city in the South. And so an awful lot of Irish serve in Louisiana units as a result of that. So again, this kind of urban feel. Okay, so we've established the background to the war and Irish involvement. Let's move on to the story of the Andersonville prison camp. In the 1860s, prisoners of war were treated very differently than we might expect. At the start of the conflict, it was commonplace for prisoners to be exchanged relatively quickly, after which they would return to the fighting. This system, however, broke down as the war continued, leading to the creation of Andersonville. In the Civil War, in the early years of the Civil War, there was a process of exchange, it was called, right? So if, if you were captured in a battle in 1861 or 62, 
and survive. You tended to be kept prisoner for a while and then there would be an organized exchange. So if we caught 2,000 of your guys here, you would wake up 2,000 of, of the other side and then you would pass back and you would go back into service, right? Prisoners were often as well something called paroled. So if you were captured, if, say, um, I captured Finn Dwyer at the first Battle of Bull Run, you might get a parole which just says, I'm not going to fight until I'm officially exchanged. And so you would stay in a parole camp within your own lines before you could go back. But in the summer of 1863, that system breaks down. And there's a number of reasons, but the primary one is the increased service of African-American troops for the U.S. on the front line. And the Confederacy refused to accept that African-American troops should, should be treated the same way as white troops. They said that they would return any African-Americans captured to slavery, that they would also, if the African-American had been born free, put them into slavery, and that they, they also threatened that they would shoot any white officers commanding them. And so the, the whole parole system breaks down in the summer of 1863. What it does is it means that prisoners that are captured from around that period tend to then spend most of the remainder of the war as prisoners. And so it's reaching chronic proportions in late 1863. Battles like Gettysburg have gone on, and there are ever-increasing numbers of men being held both north and south. One of the primary places that enlisted men were held was in a place called Belle Isle in Richmond. And there was increasing concerns about the pressures that was putting on the city by the Confederacy and on the fact that, you know, this was a major target of the war to try and move them somewhere rural, somewhere out of the way of conflict. And so they, they went looking for a rural area that they could set up a camp in. And, and there were lots of camps, but Andersonville became the biggest in the South. So it's not established until early of 1864. So it's first first opened in February. And so it's it's in a very rural location um, down in, in Southwest Georgia, quite a long way from, from anywhere. You know, it's, it's a good, good couple of hours drive from Atlanta, for example, even today. This prison camp quickly became massively overcrowded. They set up that camp there and... Enlisted men, some of whom now have been in prison since Gettysburg, some six months they've already been in, in prison, so some of them are quite weak, start to be transferred down there from late February of 1864. And more and more and more and more men start being put down in Andersonville. 1864 sees this colossal escalation in, in, in fighting a thing called the Overland Campaign in Virginia and the, the Atlanta Campaign in, in Tennessee and, and Georgia which sees almost constant contact between the two armies and significant numbers of U.S. troops are being captured in those engagements, including very large numbers of Irish. And so this Andersonville is getting swamped with men. I asked Damien to give us a better sense of the camp itself. Here he describes the camp and the conditions these prisoners faced. It's quite a small site. It started only at 16 and a half acres in size. It was extended to 26 and a half acres, but really all it was was a stockade. So a timber fence that was holding guys in. There were no barracks for most of the time it was there, no cover. Very slow stream ran through the middle of it that had waste coming from a cookhouse flowing into it. This was both the source of water and the latrine, another end for men in the camp. And as the summer increased and more and more men came in, it just becomes increasingly deadly. So eventually 45,000 men passed through that camp during its lifetime. And around 13,000 of them never come out again. So it is officially the deadliest place in the American Civil War. More men die there than at any battlefield. Like Gettysburg, for example, wouldn't hold a candle to Andersonville for the number of men who died there. And 
really most of them die in a very short period of time when it becomes significantly overcrowded in the summer and autumn of 1864. That's when nearly all these men die. And when Atlanta falls to the U.S. forces in September, the Confederacy begin to move men out of Andersonville. Some of them die at other prison camps. Some of them survive. But, you know, Andersonville is never, never liberated during the war by U.S. troops, despite kind of relatively close proximity of U.S. forces in some parts of Georgia. And so men are still being kept there. And so more men come back all the way through till about April of 1865. And, and some guys even died after the war ends, if you like, who are too weak to be moved. So you, you have this colossal, colossal death rate at this camp. And it, it kind of passes into legend as a horror show of men who didn't have rations, who didn't have cover, who were dying of exposure and disease at, at a terrible rate or not. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The death toll was shocking. Nearly one in every three inmates died in Andersonville. I asked Damien whether this death toll was a result of mismanagement or was it by design? I think it's probably closer to the latter than the former. Like there were high death rates and you'll, you'll often hear this, there were high death rates in some northern prisons as well. There were very high death rates in some other southern prisons. What sets Andersonville apart is the scale of it. It's a camp that is riven by kind of failures and failings of the Confederacy from almost the start. It's a struggle to get access to things like timber despite the fact they're in a forest, um, to, to build barracks. It's a struggle to get things like the nails that they need to put barracks up. Um, because by 1864, I mean, it's pretty clear the Confederacy is in a, a state of almost collapse at this point. They are losing the war. Barring Abraham Lincoln was running for election in late 1864, and that was kind of the last hope of the Confederacy, really, was Abraham Lincoln losing that election to not lose the war. So you have a collapsing state, which is very hard to, to manage. You also, there's there's indications of some levels of corruption as well among some Confederate officials there. You come across references, for example, like a, a supplier in Macon, Georgia, who, who won't supply cer certain requirements because he doesn't want it to go to Yankees. So, so you have all of these elements. It's pretty badly cited. You know, I was mentioning the stream and the slow running stream. It wasn't managed well enough in terms of forcing a layout on, on the structure and things. And so it's kind of this mix 
of events that create these circumstances. And it is worth noting, like the commandant in charge of the interior of the camp, a guy called Henry Wirtz, who was a Swiss immigrant, is the only man executed after the American Civil War for events that occur during it. Henry Wirtz is tried in Washington, D.C. and executed within sight of the Capitol for being the man who was in charge of the interior of Vandersonville prison. And, and I think it's fair to say he, he wasn't a nice guy, Wirtz. But certainly you could have been picking other people out if you wanted to, to be looking at uh, who was responsible ultimately for the amount of people who die in Andersonville. And you see a mix of who people hold responsible. So many of the prisoners hold him and the Confederacy responsible, but there's a lot of them. And, and you do see this particularly with some Irish guys who, who hold the Lincoln administration responsible, that they were refusing to reopen negotiations in relation to exchange. Because, of course, if you're looking at it from a particularly callous perspective, the Confederacy had less manpower than the United States did. So, so the United States was able to take the loss of its men through the breakdown of the parole system much easier than the Confederacy could as, as the kind of war of attrition in the in 1864 goes on. So, so you have significant failings, I think, on the part of the Confederacy where, and there's a good argument to be made, one of, one of, the, one of the historians who's written about Andersonville who writes about it, talks about that. If you are a state, one of the things you're supposed to be able to do is look after your prisoners to, to a degree. And the Confederacy was not capable of doing that through late 1864. So really, it's it's this combination of things. But I mean, I mean, ultimate responsibility falls at the feet of the Confederate government. Given the numbers of Irish people who served in the Union armies, inevitably thousands ended up in Andersonville. They've been the focus of Damien's research. He's managed to track some of these people back to Ireland. One particularly sad story he shared was that of a man called Owen Maloney. Damien has traced Owen and his family to his native Clare in 1846, where they endured the Great Hunger. Owen's father died on a famine relief works in Clare in 1846, and Damien has been able to piece together an incredible journey that would lead the then 12-year-old Owen to Andersonville nearly 20 years later. So it was a famine relief works road that they built, still there today, still in use albeit infrequently, just, just local traffic. And from Owen's file, we can see that his father worked there because the guy who was the foreman spoke about his 120 gang team working on the Seafield line during the famine and that when Owen Maloney's father on the relief scheme, Owen, who is then 12, takes his place. And so we have this young guy, his mother is and, and siblings, his younger siblings are destitute during the famine. There's another account from one of the local guardians who talks about how they were getting outdoor relief from the local workhouse. And over the years from the late 1840s to the 1850s, he works as a farm laborer for some of the, the bigger local Irish farmers in the area. His mother kind of lives nearby in a little cabin. He scrapes together as much money as he can get until eventually around 1860, he's able to emigrate. To America with the intent that he's going to be able to bring them all with, with them. The war breaks out. He enlists in the New Jersey infantry, goes down to Andersonville. And the disease list, if you read it, and you'd, you'd be well aware of this after your series on the famine, if you read what people die of in Andersonville, you could be reading what people died of in the Great Famine. So Owen Maloney saw his father die of something very similar to what eventually takes his own life in 1864. And with that, the whole kind of future of the family and everything he'd worked for over a decade after all that adversity is gone, apart from his mother being able to get a pension. The harrowing conditions in the camp were recorded in the diaries of prisoners. Damien went on to read extracts from a diary of an Irish prisoner, Patrick Kelly, 
from the 106th New York Infantry. He had been captured in June 1864 and his diary reveals how there was a complete breakdown of order in the camp. Uh, He says in June of 1864 that he filed into the prisoner's pen situated in the meanest location in Georgia for prisoners, that it's worse than a hog pen. He chose five tent mates, basically men who who he, he had been in the same brigade with, but he talks about, this is another diary entry, we eat, sleep and cook upon six feet square. The four men that occupied this ground before them have all died. On the 17th of June, this is his entry. Still raining. My health is good. Today we had half rations stolen by a gang that kept fat by stealing rations. So there's a lawlessness in the prison that leads to a quite famous incident there called the Andersonville Raiders, some of whom are executed after a trial by their fellow prisoners. June 29th, he says, we clubbed together and with the help of some of the guard, we caught 80 of this raiding party and killed one of them. So these are, this again is the breakdown of law and order. July 11th, the weather is cool and pleasant. We just witnessed six souls sent into eternity, the six ringleaders of the raiding gang. They were tried and condemned and executed by our own men. While I write, they still hang. One of them broke the rope, but marched boldly up on the scaffold the second time. My health some better today. He's talking about this Andersonville Raider group, some of whom were Irish, by the way, who are operating, taking rations off of other prisoners and beating them up and things. And, and then they, the camp guard works, gives permission for the prisoners to try them and execute them. Patrick Kelly's diary survives because it was published, sent back to his widow, and it was published in the local newspaper because he died in September of 1864 there and is buried there. Now, some of the Irish prisoners in Andersonville banded together to try and help each other survive these awful conditions. Another man who was there was Michael Doherty, who received a Medal of Honour. He was from Falcarin, County Donegal. And Doherty, even though he never explicitly states it, picks other Irish guys to tent with. So he tents with other Irish guys there, one of whom is, is an interesting character. So this is an entry Doherty has from March 19th. Walter Webb of my company is very sick today, the poor fellow. I must attend to him, as he did all he could for me when I was sick. We are going to take care of each other as long as we can. And uh, Walter Webb becomes Jeremiah O'Donovan Ross's brother-in-law. He marries Jeremiah O'Donovan Ross's sister. So Walter Webb is in there. So you have some of these kind of guys who are linked to significant individuals in Irish history. Darty publishes his diary, actually, in, in later decades. But one of the things he never mentions is he takes the last will and testament of a number of guys out of the camp. But he never mentioned that in his published diary. But one of them was related to a guy called Peter Toner. And so Peter Toner is dying in the camp. And he he tells he tells Doherty that he wants to leave all of this, the money he has left to his sister and things like this. But it's quite interesting in terms of how Irish people interact in the camp, because Doherty is with a little group who are doing this for each other. And Doherty is one of them. Another guy is Peter Toner, who served in a different regiment. So I told you, Doherty is from Falcarda in North Donegal. Peter Toner in this other regiment is from Letterkenny. Fargal Gallagher from Donegal is another one whose will is kept this way. Another guy called John Burke, which doesn't sound like a very Donegal name, but his real name was actually Andrew McKevitt. And he was also from Donegal. And so not only do you have these Irish guys looking out for each other, you have all these Donegal guys who are different regiments, but because they're from Donegal, they're looking out for each other and taking the wills for each other out. Three of those guys didn't make it. So they're buried in Andersonville as well. So that kind of gives you some of the, you know, just those type of diary entries. There were a lot of diaries published in the decades after the war, particularly because it it had become so famous. While there were large numbers of Irish men among the ranks of the prisoners, I asked Damien if there was any Irish among the camp officials and administrators. The most famous actually comes out of it quite well is a priest called Father Peter Whelan, who's from Folks Mills in County Wexford. 
And he's actually known as the angel of Andersonville. And he ministers, you go to the site in Libyan History Days as a man who actually portrays Whelan. And a lot of the prisoners talk about him because he gave them such relief when they were in the camp. They were able to look to him for succor. Another Irish priest actually serves there for a few weeks as well and gets mentioned. Doherty actually mentions, I think it's Doherty mentions him and goes, you know, about how they spoke about the fact that they were both from the old country. So, I mean, Whelan would be the most famous. Most of the men who ran it, there was a lot of local militia and state militia men were mainly, there were some regulars, but so, so not significant. It was mainly Georgia, Georgia Confederates, if you like, who ran it. But largely it is the story of the Irish who were in captivity in, in federal uniform. While we were on this topic, Damien brought up this fascinating story of Irish Confederate units who tried to recruit from the ranks of the prisoners incarcerated in Andersonville. The largest Irish Confederate regiment, the 10th Tennessee Infantry, attempted to recruit Irishmen out of the camp as the war went on. And again, this gets referenced by some Irishmen saying, well, one of the Irish guys writes about how, oh, he came in looking for... Oh, Irish, but I'm delighted to say that none of us joined it. It was just Yankees who joined us. But a couple of Irish did join him. But some, a small number of prisoners in an effort to escape prison did go out and enlist in them. But that's a specific Irish story. Andersonville and its enormous death toll had far-reaching implications beyond the camp. Damien's research has brought attention to some of those affected by the soldiers who died in the camp. Next, he shares a letter from an Irish woman, Anne Hand, the wife of a prisoner, Lawrence Hand, who died in Andersonville. He's buried in grave 1104 at Andersonville. He was in the 5th New York Cavalry. He died in May of 1864. But this is a letter written a number of months after that by his widow. So again, I say she wrote it, but we know because of the records that, for example, she couldn't give the exact date of birth of her son, James, because she said she couldn't read or write. Okay, so somebody is writing this for her and then reading it back to her. But she'd already written a letter in early 1864 asking to the US authorities asking about her husband. But this is the second one in late 1864. Sir, please excuse a poor soldier's wife for troubling you the second time, as I have heard nothing of my husband since December 29, 1863. He was a prisoner of war since July the 6th, 1863, and I am in great distress, myself and family, and we have had sickness and distress, and I am very uneasy for to know whether my husband Lawrence Hand is dead or alive. He belonged to Company C, 5th New York Cavalry, and was taken prisoner of war in July 1863. And I never heard from him but once since he was taken prisoner. And for the love of God, let me know whether my husband is dead or alive, for I have a family to support, and the paving streets of New York will not support us. No more at present from Anne Hand, wife of Lawrence Hand, 262 East 13th Street, New York. So you're getting these type of insights, hard-hitting insights into it, almost any one of these individuals. So we identified Lawrence and then that came up in the file once we'd identified him as Irish. And so you're getting this insight into it. The camp closed in 1865 and many of those who had come from Ireland were forgotten by wider Irish society in the aftermath. It would be nearly 160 years later before Damien would begin his research trying to uncover who they were. But he now explains how a survivor of the camp, along with the nurse Clara Barton, helped create important records in the 19th century. One of the problems with the Civil War in terms of battles like Gettysburg or Fredericksburg and places like this is that the men are largely unidentified in these cemeteries. It was very difficult after the Civil War to, to name people. And so the, the majority of that, if you go to say Gettysburg National Cemetery, for example, are unnamed men, right? So we know, we know a lot of Irish who died there, but a lot of cemeteries are unnamed. 
What makes Andersonville a bit different, number one, is the scale. So it is the place where most Irish who died in the Civil War are buried in a single spot. It's, it is is the place that has that. But number two, it's also unusual in that the vast bulk of these guys are named. And the reason for that largely comes down to a guy called Dorrance Atwater, who was a Union prisoner there who worked as an aide in the hospital. And as guys were buried in the trenches of what would become the National Cemetery, as they were buried there, there were numbers given. And Atwater kept the record. He kept the duplicate of the names of the guys who were put in there. And after the war, he returned to the site with, with a very famous woman in America called Clara Barton, who, who became the founder of the American Red Cross. And um, she's probably the most famous female nurse of the American Civil War. And Clara Barton went down with him after the war and they, they went about making sure that they could name as many of these people as possible. So, so we had this highest concentration, almost certainly of Irish dead, from a single, if you like, event or, or location in the war, the deadliest spot of the American Civil War. And we had the fact that we knew that a lot of them were named. What hadn't been done was an effort to try and determine who was Irish or Irish-American within it. And that was the genesis of the project that we started. And, and, and so we wanted to do a couple of things. We wanted to create a database of the Irish-Americans there. We wanted to create an inter- interactive map of Ireland that would help to kind of show the scale of the American Civil War's impact on Ireland by showing where some of these men came from. Damien's work on the Andersonville Irish, as you've heard, has reconstructed the lives and experiences of the men incarcerated there in remarkable detail. Now, as a historian, this really interested me. And I asked Damien more about how he went about this work and what drew him to Andersonville. As he now explains, it began with his wider interest in the US Civil War and how he used pension files to explore the story of the Irish involved in the conflict. Some of your listeners may know, but I spend most of my time working on pension files from this period. This is kind of the genesis of the project is supposed to go back to this. The widows' pensions and the dependents' parents' and children' pensions of men who died in the Civil War. And the reason I work on them is, and I make no bones about it, there is no source in the 19th century relating to Irish people that comes close to it, either in Ireland or the, the US. They are documents where families are claiming based on someone's service who dies in service often illiterate, nearly always working class Irish poor who are leaving files of sometimes well over 100 pages, sometimes with letters that they've written or had composed for them, sometimes with accounts in the first person that they are giving you of their lives. And so it's just just incredible window into Irish life in Ireland and in the United States in this period that no other source offers you. And so that that kind of has dictated most of what I've looked at in the Civil War. So many years ago, I started going around these national cemeteries. So the national cemeteries were the cemeteries that were set up at the conclusion of the war, where, where U.S. dead who, who, who fell are buried. Uh, the most famous one that most people will know or probably seen multiple times on television is Arlington in Virginia, which is, is just across the Potomac from Washington, D.C. I started going around these cemeteries and would look at Civil War graves and see if there were Irish names and then go and see what I could find out about those individuals. While Damien and another volunteer, Jackie Budell, have been working away on this project for years, 2023 saw a plaque to the Irish of Andersonville erected at the site of the camp. Damien spoke at this event and he explains what it was like. I'm just back from Andersonville where we had the first, and it is the first ever memorial placed at a site that has been funded by the Irish government and by the Northern Irish government as well, the Northern Ireland Bureau, together with the Department of Foreign Affairs, sponsored a memorial that has been placed at Andersonville to remember 
the Irish dead of the entire island. And and as I was mentioning, so so it, it's a proper cross border initiative because. We have Irish Catholics who are famine immigrants. We have Church of Ireland men buried there. We have Ulster Scots Presbyterians buried there, all of them together in Andersonville National Cemetery. And despite the scale of the war, it is the first time with these quarter of a million men. And in contrast to things like the First World War, it is the first time that that has ever happened, that we've seen that sort of of recognition from the Irish government. And Minister Dara O'Brien from the government came out and he, 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 he gave... The speech when when the the memorial was unveiled, Quivenet Crihur, who is the consul Irish consul in Atlanta, was there, and Eamon McConville of the Northern Ireland Bureau was there, and so so everybody came together for for that event, and it, it was a particularly moving one one to attend. So that'll be there as a permanent marker at the site for anyone who does visit this to to see who was there. And I would would have to just add. As uh, none of it would have happened without Professor Nicholas Allen, who, who a good Irishman himself, who's based in the University of Georgia, who really drove forward the idea of a memorial and, and organized it there, which did the National Park Service. So a hugely momentous event, to be honest, in, in terms of Irish memory of it. Although, unfortunately, not too much. There hasn't been too much in the media or news about it in Ireland, which is unfortunate. It would be nice to see a bit more of that. Hopefully something we can rectify. But really important that these guys and their families, the memorial remembers the men and their families who suffered there. Damien finished by explaining how you can find out more about the Andersonville Irish. It is well worth a visit if if you are ever in that area or, for example, travelling from Atlanta down towards, say, Florida kind of direction to to move over into the southwest to see it. The cemetery, you find it amazing how small Andersonville prison is itself and the cemetery is very, very emotive. And the National Park Service maintain it brilliantly as always. And, And there's also a prisoner of war museum there. But for, for anyone who wants to see, like the database is consistently updated and freely available, um, as is the map. And they're both on the IrishAmericanCivilWar.com website, which is the, the main website we have under Andersonville Irish. So it's it's on the top of the page. You see the Andersonville Irish page. It's IrishAmericanCivilWar.com forward slash Andersonville dash Irish. And you can look at the interactive map, which down to county level, and uh, but often down to town land levels. We've even identified a couple of houses that we think that men were born in who died in Andersonville. Just last night, Jackie got a guy who we've now named to Ring's End in Dublin. Like one of the interesting aspects of this, for example, uh, just as an aside, is we're getting quite a number of guys from Dublin out of it. Quite a number of inner city Dublin guys as well. Dublin is not a place that you necessarily think of mm. as a big immigrant county. But it's definitely a place where guys are going during the war to enlist. I mean, Cork is the biggest, as you would expect, because it was the biggest immigrant county. But Dublin is very high on, on, on the list of men who were who were interred there. So so really, it's evolving all the time. And we add in, anytime a new man is identified to a county level, I think we're at 375 now of the 950 who we've got to at least county level, if not down to village or townland. And every county in Ireland are represented on the uh, Andersonville Irish map. So it, you can you can explore it by by looking at any of them, or if you go onto things like Twitter or X as it is these days, under we've used a hashtag Andersonville Irish and stuff. You can see all the back tweets and 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 so on. And hopefully we'll have more up on the site soon in relation to the event itself and as we progress the project. Okay, that's where I'm going to leave it for today, folks. I just want to thank Damien for his time. You can. Find- 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Find links to his website below, and if you want to find more about the Irish in the American Civil War, I also have links to that broader discussion we recorded a few years back in the show notes as well. That's all for now. I'll chat to you next week in a new episode. Until then, Sloan.